0: Well, we've come in our series on faith to faith and conversion today. The topic of conversion should be very sweet and very, um, very powerful, very um, delightful to every single believer. There's barely a more wonderful reality under the sun than that of conversion. When you hear of somebody being saved, somebody turning to Christ, somebody leaving their old way behind and turning to the Lamb of God. What happens at conversion? A soul becomes alive that was dead. Once lost, that one is now found. Under the wrath and curse of God, the soul is now standing completely forgiven and completely righteous where before they were facing condemnation. The alienated, the enemy of God, are made nothing short of sons and daughters and welcomed in. It is a radical, it is a glorious change All of it, all of that to the glory of the triune God. I remember on the night in which I was saved, um, John and Mike and I drove from John's house, went down to the river just to hang out and to talk. And Mike turned to me. I was sitting in the back seat and he says, do you know, BJ, tonight the angels are rejoicing because you have come to the Lord. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? But that's true. It is faith, precious faith, as we have seen, which stands out as the means. And when people turn from their unbelief to faith in Christ, there are great things that take place. Are you born again? Well, with regeneration comes faith. Are you pardoned of all your sins? Again, faith is pivotal. With faith comes justification. And with acceptance as righteous before the Lord, you are not just made servants of God, but you are adopted. Um, and then furthermore, not only are you children, but you have a new life set before you. It's almost as if the full prism of Hebrews eleven six shines forth in conversion. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But with faith, you are all pleasing unto God. It's changed like that from night to day in every direction. Faith as the key to the door of heaven, as we saw last Sunday, is presented to us beneath another fantastic word in what is exclusively, we can say, Christian. And that word is grace. Faith is so important because grace is so huge. Grace is like a sun that is mounted into its place at high noon. Grace began to dawn at the very outset of time. In Genesis chapter 3, as man fell into darkness, even then, grace began to shine, as it were, like a ray peeking up over the horizon. That ray continued to shine over the horizon of the Old Testament. But now, in new covenant days, that grace and truth the full revelation of these gospel realities have come in the hands of the savior the son of god made flesh brings these glories shining brightly simply powerfully to faith that's the glorious message of the new testament it is given to even the chief of sinners do you understand what grace means do you understand the importance of faith As an old Southern Presbyterian wrote, we believe it was grace that provided a Savior, that it was grace that paid the price of our redemption. It is grace that begins, carries on, and finishes the sinner's salvation. So that salvation from its original and from its first ray of heavenly light, which dawns upon the sinner on earth until a crown of glory is put upon his head in heaven, is all grace, pure, unmixed grace grace. Do you believe that? Have you grasped that? Because it is grace and grace alone, sola gratia, it must be therefore faith alone, sola fide. We find in the New Testament, especially faith opposed to works because grace is opposed to your merit. There is in the marrow of our bones this idea that we are good enough, that we can be acceptable to God in and of ourselves. But the gospel of grace says it's not something you do. It's something that is done and provided for you fully so. Faith is opposed to works. It speaks of grace, which is opposed to your merit. Grace says it is all of God. Works says it is all of man. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. And evangelicalism sees that. Our gospel brothers and sisters across the board have some grasp of that, and yet somehow faith is then made into an act entirely of man. It's this idea of free will that is oftentimes preached from evangelical pulpits. This idea, listen, I chose the Lord. And if you had asked me days or weeks after my conversion, if it was up to me, i say, yeah, it was up to me. I chose the Lord. But what are we leaving out from that picture? It's because the Lord first chose me. Just like when we say, I love the Lord. Well, I love the Lord because the Lord first loved me. Is faith to be seen in this free will kind of way? Is it a sheer act of man? Well, thankfully, even modern Arminian theology acknowledges something of God's help to them. But let us look today at what surrounds them, this act of saving faith in conversion. This key of faith, as we saw last week, all part of this precious faith, which is our series. And our first point that we want to make here is that faith, your coming to the Lord, your conversion by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, is entirely. A gift. It's all of grace. Faith is a gift. Faith is of grace, beginning to end. Faith is indeed an act that you and I have done as believers. It's not a work of man, but it is an act that you have committed if if you're a Christian. But it's not something that is of yourself. You're off track if you begin saying that it was something in me that made me choose this way. Understand something about the will when we're talking about free will. The will is a part of our psyche. It's a part of who and what we are as as human beings. Man's will functions ultimately as a slave to the heart. How you think, how you feel, your your, um, convictions of life, your will follows in line like a like a car behind the the engine of a train. If if your heart is good, your will's going to follow in the same way. If your heart is bad, your will's going to follow in the same direction as well. We find then that faith is a good gift of God, pure and simple, and it is of grace, and it is unto grace. We, because of grace, believed, and as we believe, we're believing unto the grace of God. We, when we hear the gospel, our eyes are opened, and we trust in what Christ has accomplished for us. You believed because, and only because, God opened your heart. God opened your mind. God opened your eyes and your ears. Because man, without that work of this gift of grace, is hardened like a rock. That's our natural condition. Um, our mind, says Paul, is enmity with God. We are as blind as a bat when it comes to spiritual things. We may be very intelligent in all kinds of fields, but when it comes to the things of the spirit, um, they can only be spiritually discerned. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say not only are our minds darkness, but they, uh, they have darkness, but they are darkness itself. So, Two branches here demand this in our first point, that faith itself is all of grace. And number one is the fact that the Bible speaks about faith being a gift, period. If you say that faith is entirely a matter of free will, what do you do with these verses that says that faith has been given unto you? It comes from outside of you. It's not just something that you conjure up with your own free will internally. But rather, it is all of the Lord, and he should have all the glory. Listen to these verses. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, says that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Because they were appointed, because they were predestined, they were brought to faith. Again, Acts sixteen fourteen, the Lord opened Lydia's heart in order to respond to Paul's message. Here's the message going forth, a powerful message of salvation. But unless the Lord opens the heart and gives faith to believe, we won't believe. Likewise, chapter 18, verse 27 of Acts, those who had believed through grace, it's grace that leads into faith. And then Philippians 1, verse 29, to you it has been given on behalf of Christ to believe, to trust So we see them in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. It's all a gift. It's not of works. It's not something that was uniquely special about you, that that you merited, or you were lucky, or you chose this way. It's God who gives this life to you, and it's God who gives faith to receive it. One theologian says that faith is a composite act. It's an action that is on the soul and an action that then is of the soul. As God gives grace, he opens our hearts, and we embrace the offer of Christ set before us. But it is a gift, to be sure, apart from which you would not have believed. It's a gift of the triune God. God gives this. God the Father gives this gift from his love to you. You believe because God loved you with an everlasting love. You believe because the Son of God gave this gift to you, the one who paid for your sins upon the cross, And to take your sins away. And it's a gift of the Holy Spirit who quickens you to life and to faith. And this leads to the second branch here in this first point. That we understand that there can be no living faith that arises from a dead heart. That really is the the death knell to free will. How can a heart that is dead in trespasses and sins do something so spiritual as trusting savingly upon the Lord Jesus. That's the problem. The heart of man, natural man, is not neutral to the gospel, uh, but rather we are adverse to it. Uh, So life, a change, must take place so that the soil would go from, from being bad to being good and to receive that seed. And so we learn in the Bible that regeneration... Being born again precedes faith. The heart is taken out of stone and a new heart placed in. We were those dead bones in Ezekiel 37 until the power of the Spirit came and gave life where death reigned. A new heart comes into us. Not It doesn't come chronologically. It's not like God puts a new heart in somebody and they're regenerate and they're not believing in Christ for, say, hours or days. No, it happens simultaneously. It's a logical priority. The Spirit comes in and gives life, and in that life, in that new heart, are faith and repentance. And so that is always happening. Regeneration and conversion are happening under the giving of the Word of God. It's as the Word of God is being heard, whether it's being preached or taught or witnessed to, that the spirit then takes that heart of stone out and puts this heart of flesh in, a living heart, a responsive heart, and one which trusts in the Lord. So they, um, they happen simultaneously. That's what we hear in John chapter 1. We're made children of God, it says here, to as many as received him, to many as many who, who believed into his name. We have the right to become children of God. Who were born? The being born again, not of our own wills, but of God, it proceeds. It is has the um, ascendancy there. We are not made children of God um, uh, independently, according to our own will. It says th- there's three knots here: not according to this will or that will, not according who are born out of blood or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, not free will. But of God's will. So, this new heart is implanted. It has, we can say, the windows of faith and repentance, a software already uploaded in it. Living faith comes from a dead heart when pigs fly. You can't believe upon the Lord until God changes you internally. We use the image of throwing a life ring, a life preserver to somebody who's drowning, a dying man. That's the gospel. Not really. Because sinners are not dying. Sinners are already drowned. Sinners cannot reach out and lay hold of themselves upon these things. But our gospel, the biblical gospel, by the Spirit, is a life preserver that goes to them and grabs them and gives them life and brings them back out of the depths of their sins. The gospel resuscitates those who are lost in their trespasses, it gives faith, it gives awakening. Look at your Bibles. Look at the powerful words that the Holy Spirit has chosen to describe this great change. Um, It doesn't speak of man as being a little sick and needing a gospel aspirin. It doesn't speak of us being a little off in our thinking. And if we just had a little bit better education, then man would be perfected. It uses words like renewal a new creature in Christ, a recreation. The word regeneration is literally palingenesis, to be genesis again, to be made again. It is being born again. It's being quickened, a spiritual resurrection. So the picture is that you are a new creation. You were not before. You are born again. How much did you have to do? How much did Genevieve uh, contribute to her birth? Not very much. And to be raised up from the dead. That's one of the favorite pictures that Paul draws. Sin is so serious it has drowned us in the kingdom of darkness. And now God shines and calls us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. From the human side, this full change, this metanoia, this uh, repentance is a 180 degree turn. But it's because of God reviving us. It's a re-pristination of man. We are rebegotten be, by uh, incorruptible seed, by means of the word of the living and eternal God, which is absolutely indispensable. So this first point, do you recognize the wonders of this miraculous change? We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see remember one of my professors in college said if that hymn were written today, it would be something along the line of I once was, I once was, uh, I once was nearsighted, and then I got glasses. And that's not the picture at all. Look at all that Jesus did in his, in his ministry. Look at the miracles that he did. All the miracles that Christ did were crying out to the world, this is your condition. When he took the, the, the man who was lame, his friends let down through the roof laid them up and said, your sins are forgiven you. He's talking about mankind being laid low. We don't even have the strength to sit up towards God. And he says, rise up and walk. That's what the gospel does to those who are in the dust, the dust of their sins. What about him coming and giving life to the dead? He raised Lazarus and others. He gave sight to the blind. He gave ears to those who could not hear. All of these speak about um, what Jesus would do by grace and giving life through faith. The city of Mansoul was in a lost and miserable estate, but the gospel takes the city back. Jesus comes to her rescue. We sing in the words of Mr. Wesley, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. It breaks the power of reigning sin. It sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf. His praise you dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. Be blind, behold. Your savior come and leap. Ye lame for joy. Our gospel today, sadly, is almost a gospel that is aimed at those who we think are likely to believe. It doesn't reach the filthiest, the neediest. It doesn't reach those that George Whitfield first began to preach when he stepped outdoors to those miners coming out of the depths of the earth, and he preached to them, blessed are the poor in spirit, and has such an effect upon them, you could see the gutters from their tears running down their cheeks. We have a gospel that changes the world, a gospel that changes lives, changes families, changes cultures. Indeed, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing for that gospel. Well, now we move then from faith is a gift to how faith, precious faith, as a key alone saves you. With faith in Christ, the whole Christ comes everything. You trust in Christ and all things become yours. You know, theologians, reformed theologians, they love to talk about what's called the duplex gratia, double grace. We would like to use foreign languages to confuse the sheep. Um, Double grace. One grace to forgive all of your sins, one grace to empower you against your sins, to fight your sins. But might we not add two others? There is the grace that identifies you as a child of God. Your identity in Christ is that of those who've been adopted. That is a grace of God, by the way, historically and in Reformed theology, has been neglected, just left out oftentimes in in theology, in systematic theology. And it is a grace that elevates us to be set apart forever unto the Lord, that definitive sanctification where we are transferred into the kingdom of Christ, and out of the dominion of the wicked one. So I want to talk about a quadruplex, gratia, fourfold grace. But really, there is but one grace, and that's union with Christ, which includes all the rest. For Christ has made unto you all things, as we have seen not too long ago in our series on Grow in Christ but we want to single out the chief of these graces by faith. And what is the chief of graces that God gives to the sinner who turns in faith to Jesus Christ as his Savior? And that is the full forgiveness of sin. The justification from all of your iniquities. Our faith justifies, not your works, It's not faith plus your works. It's not being good enough for God. You can never be good enough for God. But rather, uh, he pardons all of your sins. There is this fascinating book in the Bible. You might have heard of it. It's the book of Romans. I want you to turn with me there to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I can't believe nobody laughed at that. Wow. Wow. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 28. Paul has indicted the whole world, or the Holy Spirit has, in the previous section. And he summarizes in verse 19, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law or under law, so that every mouth may be closed, all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. There's no entrance into the, into the throne room of God. By the law, by your works, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You've got to see that first. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a removal of our sin and all the anger, righteous anger for our sin in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that's a famous verse because Luther in his in his uh, translation, German translation, inserted the word by faith alone. And that definitely carries the right sense. Faith apart from works. So, here we see here the devastating charges. You would think as you're reading through this, what can come from all of this indictment against man? We're all, we're all guilty. All fall short of the glory of God. But here's the surprise a righteousness that God Himself provides, a divine righteousness in His own Son, since we are bankrupt on our own and owe everything to the judge in the first place. This righteousness is not according to your works, it's not according to the law stipulations done by your hands. It's rather taken out of our fallen, corrupt, guilty, leprous hands, and Jesus takes it into hand and brings a righteousness to us that is not our own. And then notice all throughout this passage, the use of faith. Faith appears twice in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. It's again in verse 25, a propitiation in his blood through faith. Again in 26, I say of his righteousness at the present time that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus, again, in 27, it is by a law of faith. And again, in 28, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And continues on in verse 30, as well as verse 31. The law or a principle of faith, not works, which is the same as saying it is all of Christ. It is all of grace. It is not of works, which is the same as saying it is It is uh, all from the Lord, you see. So Ferguson writes, he says, Faith has no constructive energy. It is complete reliance upon another. It is Christ-directed, not self-directed. And Christ-reliant, not self-reliant. So if you hear the preacher saying, Have faith, it's not saying, Have faith in yourself. Have faith in Christ. It involves the abandoning and not the congratulating of self. Faith draws everything from Christ and contributes nothing to him. Faith is simply a shorthand description of abandoning oneself trustingly to Christ, whom God has made our righteousness. So there is this transaction then that takes place. As you believe upon Christ, there is a double transaction of justification Our sins are imputed to Christ as the sin bearer. Our sins, as we heard earlier in the service in Psalm 32, they're not imputed to us. To whom are they imputed then? To the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Think of that. The all-righteous, all-just God does not hold you accountable for your guilt because another has put it to his account. That's an amazing thing. God, who is infinitely righteous, finds a way to look upon you, the unrighteous, as righteous, only for the sake of his righteous son. He no longer charges you with your mountain of guilt. The chief of sinners goes free, not by a slip of the law, not by a clerical error, but by a full satisfaction that has been made Uh, for God's righteous wrath think of it all of your sins are cast from you legally as far as the east is from the west and buried in the depths of the sea I cast them behind my back says the Lord and God will not unearth them again God will not bring them back up and give them a resurrection and bring them into the court of law Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are blood red scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In fact, not only will God not unearth them and recharge you with them, He would be unrighteous to do so. And God can never be unrighteous, you see. His justice is satisfied. His justice, in other words, because of what Christ has done, is now for you. It's not like God is kind of divided. He's got these attributes that are against you and these other attributes that are for you, like love and goodness and grace. And here's justice and holiness. And they're frowning over you and they're fighting it out. And, boy, you're standing in the middle hoping that it'll work out that's some tennis match to watch. No, God's entire being is reconciled because Christ has paid the full price. Augustus Toplady put it so well in one of his songs. He said, from whence this fear and unbelief, since God my father put to grief his spotless son for me, can he, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for the debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost penny paid, whatever thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge, my my charge procured, and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. This is why either you're going to pay for your sins if you don't believe, or you believe upon Christ and he pays for it. I don't know about you, but that seems like a sweetheart deal. How anybody can look at that and go, oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'd like to pay for my, I think I'd like to stand before an all holy God and give an account for myself and have to, have to try to make it in by my goodness. Or you accept the righteousness of God in his very own son, provided for this very reason. He closes, turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest speak peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. And on your deathbed, that's what the Christian is going to say. What is your hope of eternal life? Jesus died for me. Jesus has paid the price. Now, that is glorious, isn't it? All of your sins are lifted. The sinner is at the hangman's noose. He's on the wall before the firing squad. Here comes a pardon from the highest Lord and judge. Who would not take it? But this is not all of the the gospel regarding justification. Not only does Jesus take your sins upon himself and die for you, But he rises to give you then a righteousness which is complete. Not only taking away your bad record, your criminal record, but you were given a perfect record, if you will. A robe of his righteousness for you to go to court in. And this is the only robe, by the way, that should be worn in the church. If a minister is going to wear a robe, I believe all of you priests and prophets and kings sitting there in the pew ought to have robes as well. It's Christ's robe that wraps us. That's the picture of the gospel. Christ's active righteousness is imputed to the believer. His obedience is greater than all of Adam's disobedience, says Romans chapter 5. So this transaction takes place as to your status before the high bar of God himself. It's something that is outside of us. We are still in this life ungodly. But God justifies the ungodly who trust once and for all in Christ as their Savior. Now, what are the fruits of this? What are the fruits of this precious faith? Well, assurance. Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will never find true peace until you find it and keep it in this, that Christ takes all your sins upon himself and bestows all his righteousness upon you. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Assurance, you should walk in that robe every day. Freedom comes. John chapter 8, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And Paul catches it in Galatians chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And then thirdly, obedience. Assurance, freedom, obedience. Faith is the alone instrument of justification, yet it does not remain alone in the person justified, but is always accompanied then with these other saving graces. It is no dead faith, but rather one that works through love, which we'll pick up, Lord willing, next time. Sola fide is not incompatible with good works. It's just incompatible with good works that become your savior. It is the fruit of faith and not the ground for your justification. Um so as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe God gives. I just want to close here. Does this not excite you? That people can come to know the Lord today? That you could share the gospel with somebody this afternoon or this evening or sometime this week, and they will no longer be marching towards judgment and hell. And they will be turned around. Does that, that should excite us, shouldn't it? It should thrill us, we who've been snatched from the fire ourselves. Today could be your spiritual birthday. Today you could be taken out of the hands of the wicked one who's deceiving you in your unbelief and bring you into the kingdom of love and of God's own son. Today you could become a new creature and begin tasting the full redemption that's coming when the creation is released from its bondage. You could have all of your sins taken away from you today and be freed and be made alive and be pardoned of all of your iniquities and become a child of God this very minute and so become an heir of God and a brother or sister to Jesus, your elder brother. You could have hope today you could have life for death, joy for sorrow, peace for turmoil, covenant blessing for unending cursing. This should excite you. What you could, that you could be the voice and the hand of the Lord, reaching one who is perishing. I said in the beginning, angels rejoice at one soul who turns. Should we not join in that rejoicing? Heaven rings at the news of one soul saved. Do you Rejoice in those things. Daniel says those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What great good happens when one soul turns to the Lord. Be serious. Take these things to heart. Tis not for man to trifle Life is brief, and sin is here. Our age is but the falling of a leaf, a dropping tear. We have no time to sport away the hours. All must be earnest in a world like ours. Not many lives, but only one have we. One, only one. How sacred should that one life ever be, that narrow span. Day after day filled up with blessed toil. Hour after hour still bringing in new spoil. Our Father, we pray that you would uh, fill our hearts with the joy of reaching the lost, you who have reached us, you great shepherd of the sheep, you great sower of the seed, you who call your Lazaruses out of the tomb and give eyes to the the blind and ears to the deaf and new hearts to those dead in trespasses and sins. How we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful news, the heaven rejoicing news that sinners' can and will be pardoned, that Jesus has a full tally, a great host which cannot be numbered from every uh, corner of the earth. Help us, Lord, to enter into that harvest. These harvest days are before us. Help us, we pray, to be effective tools in your hand. We ask, Lord, your grace to be upon us and to increase our faith and to bless your church, to expand her, to strengthen her stakes and lengthen her cords, we pray.